AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. It is Election Day 2022. Get out there and vote. Asian consumers have been voting with their yen, yuan, won, and dollars. And it is clear U.S. meats are the winners. And we'll get ready for tomorrow's USDA update to the U.S. corn and soybean crops and how those crops might be used in the year ahead. Live from Civic Duty Day in the USA via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Joel Haggard from the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Then it's Kevin McNew from Farmers Business Network. And right after the news, Karen Bonert from Farm Journal's Milk. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. Now, here's the host of AgriTalk, Jeff Flory. All right, Davis. Yeah, clear weather across a lot of the U.S. It's not perfect. It's not yeah. perfect, but it's good enough that... Voter turnout should not be impeded by any winter storms or anything like that. So, boy, get out and vote. Today is the day. It's uh, It holds the promise of being one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest, turnout, voter turnout in mm-hmm. a non-presidential year ever. So if you don't think your vote counts, you are wrong. Get out there and and take advantage of take advantage of what am i saying live up to the responsibilities there you go get out there and vote there you go there you go All and what right. do they say it's it's the best terrible weather we've come up with so far something like that is that how that goes is that how it I, i'm not sure i think that's right okay some of that's right some of those <laughs> words are correct <laughs> how you doing deep. buddy everything good everything's great everything's great it's fantastic beautiful morning just feel that hint of crispness in the air Let's you know yep. it's November. I, I yep. don't know. I, I'm, I'm a little gunky in my throat though. A little. Okay. Maybe the change of season is is getting to my sinus just slightly. Other than that, I'm pretty good. Pretty well, good. You know, everybody's got a way to deal with the transition of the seasons, and we are going to have to deal with the transition of the season by the end of this it. week. Yeah, is what it looks like. Absolutely. So, yeah, it looks like winter's going to show up and uh, stick around for a while after that. Okay, man, we have got a lot of ground to cover today, including yeah. a really cool story from Karen Bonert oh, from good. Farm Journal's Milk. So let's go ahead and get started. Well, we've got a bevy of flash sales to report, Chip. 339,000 metric tons of corn and 144,000 metric tons of soybeans to Mexico, 139,000 metric tons of beans to China, and 132,000 metric tons of soybeans to unknown destinations all of these for the 22-23 marketing year, Chip. You know, I guess it's not too surprising to see Mexico show up. They're kind of a not just a value buyer, but they're a consistent buyer because the U.S. is where they come to for for their feed supplies primarily, which is really curious because of their plans to ban GMO corn yeah. by 2024. This is something that has got to get resolved ASAP. Well, let's talk uh, USDA's crop condition report. This for the weekend of November 6th. Corn, 87% harvested, compares wow. to 76% average. 
Soybeans, 94% harvested, compares to 86% on average. Cotton, 62% harvested, 55% on average. Winter wheat was 92% planted, 73% emerged, and 30% good to excellent compared to 28% good to excellent last week. Corn at 87% harvested, that is 11 points ahead of the five-year average. We went from a late planting season to an early harvest season, yeah. and somehow, some way, even the late-season corn seems to be holding up on yield and test weight. Well, crop consultant Dr. Michael Cordonier lowered his Argentine corn crop estimate, noting last week was, quote, not a good week in Argentina amid frosts in many areas on top of continued dry conditions. Cordonier kept his Argentine soybean crop estimate unchanged while making no changes to his Brazilian crop forecasts of 151 million metric tons for beans and 125.5 million metric tons for corn. For the midterm elections, it's all over but the voting and the time it will take to declare winners usually slow Pennsylvania and Arizona and a possible runoff in Georgia's Senate race could mean results will be days, weeks, or even farther out. Control of both houses of Congress is up for grabs as many races are considered toss-ups with nonpartisan predictors saying the GOP will take control of the House. Predictors are on both sides of who will control the Senate. You know what? I'm going to make a prediction. I think we are going to know by the end of the night uh, control of the House, control of the Senate, and the gubernatorial results. I think think we will have enough results to know how how those are going to turn out, the big issues. Well, nearly three-quarters of workers say they need additional work to make enough income due to inflation, according to an October survey of U.S.-based employees by job search site Monster.com. A separate survey from Prudential Financial found 81% of Gen Z and 77% of millennial workers said they have pursued gig work or are considering additional side work this year to supplement their income. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez opened the COP27 summit in Egypt on Monday by giving countries a stark choice, work together now to cut emissions or condemn future generations to climate catastrophe. The speech was intended to set an urgent tone as governments sit down for two weeks of talks. A chip, according to a new report presented at the conference, poor countries need $2 trillion a year to help them cut their greenhouse gas emissions and cope with the effects of climate change. Chip. All right, Davis. You know, I could use a trillion to deal I could with use climate it. change issues. It would too. definitely help me cut my greenhouse gas emissions. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I should not have said that. <laughs> Do not make light of this situation. Thank you so much, Davis. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Let's bring in Karen Bonert, editor of Farm Journal's Milk. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Chip. Uh, you have got an incredible story on dairyherd.com right now. It's a story of resiliency. It's a story of community support. It's really cool. Yeah, it's incredible. So a year ago, last September, New Jersey as we all know, got hit hard by an F1 tornado. And that included hitting the largest dairy in the state, Wellacrest Farms, home to 600 cows, milk cows. The devastation, of course, was intense. Much of their equipment was destroyed, Chip, including their chopper. 90% of the buildings were completely gone. Debris was all over. They lost 45 cows. But somehow, through the grace of God, the family was able to resume milking by 1 a.m. 1 a.m. the next day. So that's crazy. And and also what was so overwhelming, Chip, was the waves of people that came in off the street 
uh, to offer help. Donations poured in. They had a GoFundMe account that got $120,000, which helped them rebuild their heifer barn. The total loss was estimated at $2 million, although the family says that they're still you know, battling with insurance companies. And another really cool aspect to the story is that a group of Amish um, offered to help yeah. rebuild with the building process for 10 weeks. And they wouldn't accept pay. Um, they would accept being fed, which local restaurants offered to, to feed people day in and day out, all those that were working, all the employees. And so, like you said, it's just a truly a community support. And the family said, you know, with tears in their eyes, they told me like, you know, without this free help, the free labor, they really have no idea how they would have been able to afford to rebuild. It just kind of restored their faith in humanity, if you will. That's and another awesome. part was their feed company offered them a hundred thousand dollar loan at zero percent, kind of a line of a credit to help with the rebuilding. So cool. All Very, hands, very cool. All hands on deck to get that dairy back up and running. That's an incredible story. Read more dairyherd.com. Davis and I will be back with more AgriTalk here in a moment. AgriTalk is brought to you by Rumenson. Rumenson's quality, consistency, and efficiency make it the right choice for your cattle operation. Rumenson, trusted by generations. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. AgriTalk is brought to you by the NRCS Conservation Stewardship Program, which cost shares more than 150 practices on farms and ranches. Visit your local service center or farmers.gov today. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Chip Lorre. Glad that you are with us this morning. Davis Michelson is, of course, here as well. Standing by. And Davis, down in Oklahoma yes. City, the U.S. Huh? Meat Export Federation is gathering for the Strategic Planning Conference, and mm -hmm. our guest will have one of the highlights of the conference there. He will be reporting on what is happening with market development in Asia. Right. Uh -huh. Joel Haggard, Senior VP, Asian Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation, joins us right now. Joel, it's good to talk with you again. How are you? Very good. Enjoying Oklahoma City. Good. Good. Excellent. Uh, you know, it is a dynamic time for U.S. meats in the Asian markets. We're seeing some gains, some big gains on some of the products. Some of the products are struggling a little bit compared to a year ago, but some of the really bright spots with beef in particular. Um, I'd like to start with China. And, and okay. the, the country is still, we think, we think the country is still working with a zero COVID policy. 
what has that meant for meat demand and stability of meat demand in China? Well, yeah, I mean, great question. Um, I, I mean, you would think that it would be disastrous, right? You would think that all these restaurants are closed down, people are locked up, they can't go out and get food, um, supply chains are all torn up. Um, but then, look, you're going to have a record beef imports this year into China. We knew about the pork situation because they've recovered their domestic production and imports really uh, are highly correlated with the uh, domestic uh, hog price there, which is down from those ridiculous highs during the ASF outbreak. Yep. But um, I mean, overall consumption's uh, held and, uh, you know, this is similar to what we've, we've seen around the world. We were all crying disaster when the pandemic hit because we thought that food service demand would just completely crater. But um, the retail demand and, and like in China, um, the, the e-commerce demand for beef has been phenomenal. Um, yeah. it, it's kind of normalized. So people that maybe five years ago would would press the purchase button on e-commerce to try out a little beef. Now it's a regular purchase. So um, we've seen strong demand. I mean, China will pay an extra four to five billion dollars this year uh, on its total beef import bill than last year, which was a record already. Joel, okay, I understand that. With their, what is the? How do Chinese consumers access U.S. beef? What's what's the easiest way for them to get access to U.S. beef? Well, of course, it depends on where you are, right? I mean, you know, yeah. China's a big country. So, um, I mean, you got, you know, they, they differentiate between, you know, first tier cities, second tier, third tier, fourth tier, fifth tier, and then the rural. But now with um, the buildup of these e-commerce uh, supply chains and delivery channels throughout the country, it's really accessible to most of the population. I know that sounds pretty crazy, but I mean, if you're in a fourth tier city and you want to order U.S. beef chuck roll hot pot slices, it can be there in a couple of days. That just didn't, and, you know, that that those supply chains just didn't exist a couple of years ago. And that is delivered to their front door? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's phenomenal. The, the e-commerce boom has been phenomenal. There's been a tremendous investment in logistics to build out that e-commerce uh, infrastructure. And, you know, it started, of course, with first tier cities, went to the second tier, but now it, it's really nationwide. And, uh, you know, this, I mean, these are the stories you just kind of don't, don't really hear about. That is phenomenal. What, um, why beef, Joel? I mean, why it, it has really been a miraculous year for beef demand in China. Why beef this year? Well, I think it's not just this year. I mean, I think we're really seeing kind of this generational change in meat consumption habits. Um, okay. you, you're, you're just seeing more beef consumption per capita. And then, you know, you know beef consumption 20 years ago was minimal. Um, before imports, I, I mean, the domestic beef was pretty, I mean, this is not high quality stuff, right? I mean, if you go back 40 years, you have draft animals still as right. the beef supply. So, um, I, I mean, an incredible transition just in the availability of beef. Um, China joined the WTO, you know, helped that. And then we had the, uh, I mean, for the United States, 
then we had the, the Trump deal and then uh, the two Trump deals, actually. So for USB, it's been phenomenal. So what we're so what we've seen, what we're seeing is this kind of general generational change in the composition of meat consumption. And there's going to be more beef consumption and it's still pretty low. OK, oh, man, I like hearing that, Joel, when you say <laughs> that it's still pretty low, that tells me there's a lot there's a very high ceiling on on beef demand in china and and demand for u.s beef right well you know i mean the other thing i'm really excited about is that most of the beef they're importing right now is south american grass-fed beef okay and you know again going let's go back 20 years consumers are saying oh yeah i want to buy some beef steaks so what what they're buying 20 years ago or even 10 years ago is they're buying pumped south american beef products, but now they have access to grain fed and they're, and they're slowly developing this, uh, this knowledge base about okay. you know, beef attributes and yeah. people like marble beef in Asia. I mean, quality there's no counts. question. Yeah. Yeah. Quality counts, uh, yeah, trade quality rules counts. and regulations, Joel, things like import quotas, are there headwinds for us meats into Asia that need to be overcome or is the U.S. on fairly equal footing with other meat exporting countries? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that I think the big one, you know, the big one we were pleased to see was that equalization of trade access with the U.S.-Japan agreement. I think that was in 2019. So we were put on even even footing there um, with our competitors. Um, I mean, in China, for example, there's no there's no import quotas. So uh, we do have uh, we do have duties there. There's a value added tax. Um, we're level right now with our competitors. Uh, well, close to level with our competitors in China on on beef. Korea, we're a little bit ahead because we signed our free free trade agreement first. Um, of course, you know we'd like to see those tariffs uh, go to zero everywhere, but uh, you know that's that's going to be a work in progress for a while. Right. Um- Mexico is still the number one importer of U.S. pork, but South Korea is right there along with it. Japan as well. What's the driver there on on imports of U.S. pork into South Korea in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, what you see, you know, you saw you saw a drain of kind of pork supplies over the last couple of years as China sucked up all the, you know, all the available volume right out there. Mm And what you've seen um, this year is you've seen, you know, Europe, Europe is far more dependent on China for its exports. And so you've seen just really a surge in low cost product from Europe uh, pouring into everywhere into Asia, except, uh, except China, because the, the demand just hasn't been there. So, you know, I, I mean, we're looking year on year, right? I mean, we're still going to have a really good export year on pork. But um, but, you know, the the headwind on the pork side uh, into Asia has been that, you know, that drying up of uh, uh, China demand. I mean, Europe's going to be down a million tons just just because of their reliance on that market. And that stuff's just found its way into these other markets at extremely low cost, particularly Japan, but also Korea. Okay. well, September port pork export value equaled $62.37 per head um, uh, on hogs. On beef, the value was $418.67 per per head. Obviously, very important to the U.S. market. 
you're you are at the strategic planning conference. What's next? What what do you anticipate uh, going forward for the market there in in the Asian Pacific region? Yeah, I mean, we, I think I mean on the beef side, I think it just looks positive. I mean, we just see we just see demand continuing to increase. Um, we have these currency issues, as as everyone knows, especially in Asia. It's not hitting all the currencies globally, but the dollar's really been strong against the the yen, of course, the yuan, even the the Chinese renminbi. But you know, I mean, it's amazing how how that hasn't dented uh, demand. Um, you know, I've been talking about Asia's beef import bill this year. Bill, I mean, you know, it sounds like, oh, payments due, you know, we got to pay for the beef, but the demand's been strong. I mean, uh, as I said earlier, um, these countries are going to be paying billions more for their beef, but they're, you know, they're ordering similar volumes or increased volumes. So um, that that demand is just out there. So I, I don't know, we're very positive. Well, Joel, boy, keep up the good work in developing those markets. Uh, it's adding a lot to the bottom line, and these are markets that, that uh, we've got to be a part of in the future going forward. There is no question about that. Thank you, Joel. Okay, thanks, Chip. You bet. Joel Haggard, Senior VP, Asia Pacific Region for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We've got Kevin McNew next. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. Joining us now, Pro Farmer editor Brian Grady Beach. You know, not a whole lot of pressure on this corn market. The D is down three and a half cents right now, but that's got us at the lowest level since the end of September. What's going on here? Yeah, just continue to slide chip, and and I think that the anticipation is that maybe uh, USDA will increase its uh, production and, and yield number a little bit tomorrow, and and uh, so um, just you know lackluster trade here ahead of USDA's reports, and and uh, just can't find any any buyer interest at the moment anyway. Yeah, had some export sales announced this morning. That's got to be encouraging. Well, uh, we had a corn sale. Uh, that's not doing much to help the corn market, but uh, three soybean sales, one to Mexico, one to Unknown, and one to China, uh, they're helping to, to uh, firm up the uh, soybean market here at mid-morning. And, and uh, meal is higher as well. Soy oil, it's trading to the downside. So we're seeing spreading action in the uh, product markets. Uh, but like I said, that uh, export sales news is, is supportive for soybeans. Yeah, the crop condition report really didn't do much to help the hard red winter wheat market this morning, did it? No, uh, you know, we, we ticked up a little bit, but at 30% yeah. good to excellent, it, it's still it's a, a poorly rated crop. Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay, take us over to livestock trade. What's happening? 
Yeah, kind of disappointing, to be honest with you, on the live cattle side of things. We had a, a big move up yesterday, corrected buying there. Uh, but, you know, with the weather that's moving into the central and, and northern plains later on in the week, I anticipated that maybe we'd see some buyer follow through buyer interest this morning. That's not the case. Um, we are seeing both live cattle and feeder cattle under some pressure. And then the hog market, uh, similar situation, even more explosive gains yesterday and, and pulling back some of that uh, so far here mid-morning. All right, Brian, thank you. That is Pro Farmer Editor Brian Grady. We are one minute away for a conversation with Kevin McNew from FBN. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. We don't make the news, we render it. AgriTalk. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm your host, Chip Flory. Davis Michelson, we've been yeah. talking about the growth in export demand for U.S. pork, for U.S. beef. This year has been a beef story. Last year was the pork story. But I, I when when you think about it this way, okay, mm-hmm. um, let me get the, let me get the right number in front of me. Exports accounted. This is on the pork side of things. Exports accounted for 27.3% of total September pork production. Mm-hmm. Pork production. I mean, that is pretty amazing to me. That's up from 26.9% a year ago. And when we look at beef, uh, we are looking at a situation where, let's see, September export value increased. Uh, January, September exports in, let's see, I don't have that right number. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Now I got it. Uh, Accounted for 14.1% of total September beef production. 14.1% on the beef side of things. Okay. So if you're, if you don't think that this is, is important, uh, you've got another thing coming. Hey, Davis, have you got the yields in the fields ready to go as we're waiting for Kevin here? You know what? I absolutely do. Let's get to today's yields in the fields, Big Apple. Yields in the fields on AgriTalk is brought to you by MicroEssentials from Mosaic, the science of more. Discover our proven products. Text YIELDS to 31313. Chip, you know I love South Dakota. Let's go to the southeast corner, Lincoln County, where a grower writes in, quote, my corn seems to be pretty consistently running about 66 to 68% of APH across various soil types, topography, and hybrids. Buying 80% insurance coverage was a good investment this year. That's Yields in the Fields brought to you by Micro Essentials from Mosaic. Chip? Yeah, and we've got the crop production report that is coming up tomorrow morning from USDA. Obviously, that's going to be a very important report uh, the like Brian was just saying, there's a little bit of a mixed tone on the crop expectations going into this report. The late season yields, we've talked about it several times. It's amazing how the test weight has held up. It's amazing how some of the the late planted corn got the extra days on the end of the growing season that that, that was required to build a yield. It built a mm-hmm. yield, and mm-hmm. here we go. Now yep. I, I wonder where we're going to end up with this with this corn yield. Um, it, it was not an ideal finish to the growing season, no question about it. 
when we wrapped up on crop tour, we had that dry forecast out in front of us, and it looked pretty clear clear cut that that corn was was what it was. It wasn't going to get any better than what we saw when we were out there on crop tour. Well, surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Some of these late season reports are indicating that the corn is better than what we anticipated in that third week of August. Soybeans, well, it's a different, it's kind of a different story. Those beans needed rain in September and just didn't get them in a lot of places. I, sh- I should know this, but where does, do, maybe you don't know, where does Lincoln County lie in South Dakota in relation to I 90? Because you had talked about it's that right I 90. Is, is it right on I 90? Yeah. Yeah, because your reports that day coming out of South Dakota on the corn were not good right. um, until you get further north, especially north of of I-90. And if if we're running 66 to 68 percent of APH, you know, across all soil types, topography and hybrids, that yeah. sounds like a pretty decent recovery there. If, yeah. if it's up from what you were expecting. Right. Right. And and the areas north of I-90, as you were just indicating, were better than what we were south of I-90. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I mean, it's it, it, it was a tough growing season up there in South Dakota and and uh, really kind of impressive to see how the how the uh, crop has um, has finished up there. So it, it's, uh, you know, we've we've got the supply side that we're going to be taking a look at tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But it's the demand side of the corn market in particular that I think has really started to become a point of concern for a lot of growers out there, or for a, a lot of market watchers. Mm-hmm. Um, the export number in particular yesterday, Dan Bossy, talking about the impact of the Mississippi River, the, the nope. slower shippings uh, on barge down to the Gulf of corn and soybeans. You see, Normally, this is the time of the year where if I see a barge, a southbound barge loaded, mm-hmm. I just assume that it's filled with soybeans going to sure. the Gulf uh, up here in in the uh, in the Upper Mississippi. Uh, that hasn't been the case a whole lot this year because of the shipping problems that we're seeing. But they have been sending more soybeans into the PNW, uh, the Pacific Northwest, to leave from that location. And that is normally where we would be shipping wheat and corn from at this time of the year. Well, if we're shipping more beans, Davis, what does that mean? (laughs) There's not as much room or as much space for the corn and wheat loading. So those are both suffering big time up at the PNW and at the Gulf and at the Gulf. So uh, it's uh, it's it's a real issue that having to deal with and it's it's i think it's going to show up in some of the um in some of the usage estimates that we're getting tomorrow davis that mm-hmm. corn export estimate and as i said dan bossy is looking for like 200 million bushels yeah. to come off of that we talked about that with him yesterday it um uh, it's not going to happen all at once but if they take another 50 million bushels off of the corn exports and the corn crop estimate does not continue the trend that we've seen from August to September, September to October, October to November, which is a, you know, that decline in the national average corn yield. If, even if it just holds steady, the crop holds steady at this point, you start taking anything off of the demand side, you're adding to the bottom line. Now, 
the bottom line, you add 50 million bushels to it, it doesn't solve our problems. We need to keep that in mind, and that's part of the reason that we're still hanging around six seventy to seven dollars mm-hmm. in December corn futures and and the the March corn futures as well. So there's a reason that the markets are holding up here as well as they are the corn market in particular. But you know me, I'm always looking for the next shoe to drop, and well, yeah. and disappointing on disappointment on the export side could be the next shoe. And I, you know, I like to be an optimist. I sure you do. And I and I feel like, well, okay, you cut back on the the export, uh, the corn export forecast. Well, maybe that's building demand. Maybe you know, beans are are sort of elbowing corn and wheat out of the way to get out of the country. That just because the world needs corn. Let's I'll just say it. They need. They're going to need corn. Right. At some point, but then there's also this idea that I just can't shake. I keep bringing it up: is waiting out Brazil at some point? Yeah, does corn get elbowed out of the uh, the export lineup long enough? And wow, we'll just get it from yeah. we'll just get it from Brazil. Yeah, no, I I don't think that's going to be the case because okay. um, November looks good. November, if, if we can get corn in position. I think our corn export number is going to look pretty good. Beans are going to look really good yeah. in November. Uh, I think the corn number will be okay in November, and we're a week in, and it was a kind of a stinker mm-hmm. of an export estimate for the for the last week of October. But let's get into November and take a look at 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 the export loadings at at that point. They're going to improve. I don't think they improve enough to make us optimistic about the corn export situation. Mm-hmm. But I think they improve enough to uh to not be a, a weekly reminder that export demand stinks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well okay. And here's this too. In reading uh, Dr. Michael Cordonier's comments this morning, I heard Ken Ferry's voice echoing in my mind. Uh, Cordonier lowered his Argentine crop estimate, not by a not by a whole lot, um, but his comment. What the quote is? It was not a good week in Argentina, and Ken Ferry always always preaches you never want your corn to have a bad day. And here we are having a not good week in Argentina. Right, right, and Doctor C taking a million ton off of the the corn crop down there. Yep. Hey, when you're talking, it, it's like they got a Memorial Day freeze. Okay, think about it that way. We, we had one this yeah. last year too. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So all right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, but here we are. I mean, what if we end up at 172 bushels per acre for a national average corn yield? Yeah. That is nine bushels below the trend line. Nine bushel. So we talk about this big corn crop that's coming. It's not as big as it was when it was in the bag at the start of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, once once it came out of the bag and started going in the ground, it, it was almost like we started losing yield potential at that moment. At that moment. Well, and as and, I've always as I've always said that it has its greatest yield potential while it's still in the bag. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder, and we've talked about this before, but I mean, I, I wonder what the yield potential is when that seed is in the bag. I've had that mm-hmm. conversation with with, with uh, some producers. And, oh, you're going to get and, philosophical. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, buddy. 
you know, and because then you got to start talking about what they're doing to screw it up. Right. What are you doing to lose yield from what's sitting in the bag? And that goes for corn and soybeans. That's not what a are pleasant you doing to lose that yield. Yeah. That would be a fun conversation to have with the right people, wouldn't it? It would. We should get somebody on the radio to talk about that. We absolutely will. All right. Hey, <laughs> uh, we are still putting it together. We are still putting it together for the final segment. We'll see who we've got. But I know this. There will be me. There will be Davis. Indeed. And there will be more AgriTalk. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. The best talkers in ag, including you. Join the conversation on AgriTalk. Call us at 855-4-TALK-AG. Welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm your host, Chip Flory. Glad that you are with us. Let's get into this conversation right now with Kevin McNew, Chief Economist, VP of Research at Farmers Business Network. Kevin, welcome back to AgriTalk. How are you, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me back, Chip. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We've got the crop production reports coming our way tomorrow. Uh, corn yields. You've done another survey at FBN. What? Give us the top line on it. What are you expecting? You know, I think the takeaway I have for producers is, is we don't see huge surprises. We see tinkering at the margin on, on both corn and soy yields. Uh, we're a little higher maybe than what USDA was on uh, corn you know, USDA last month, 171.9. We're closer to 173, you know, and it's really kind of where is the crop looking better than USDA thinks? And that really is kind of the Eastern Corn Belt. Indiana and Ohio are, are really outperforming the USDA marks. Um, Minnesota, North Dakota, not as good as USDA, but when you kind of do the math of adding it all up, we kind of think there's a, there's a potential for a slight bump higher in corn yield, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to derail the market. You know, we have such big okay. headwinds on, on all these things, um, you know, with inflation and constraints around uh, supplies around the world. So I don't think this changes the overall themes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good stuff, Kevin. And when I look at your map, your, your the corn yield harvest results, boy, that area in Western Iowa, South central Iowa into Eastern Nebraska, really shows up as uh, the struggles, the the difficulties that they had this year really shows up. 
Yeah, it really does, Chip. I mean, it's it's so crazy. You know, I wish our, our listeners could see the map, but it's yeah. like a diagonal line going from yeah. Fargo, North Dakota, all the way down to Springfield, Illinois. Uh, and it's just a, a green, you know, good zone. But everyone, you know, kind of on either side of that zone is is not doing so well. You know, you get into southwest Iowa, northeast Nebraska, uh, certainly down into Kansas, the yields are just not so good. So it's really about kind of, you know, how good is the good versus how bad is the bad this year. Right, right. Okay, so maybe a bit of an uptick on the corn yield. Uh, are you tinkering with the harvested acreage at all? Not at this point. I mean, we, okay. you know, we, we don't have a ton of information on that to kind of give that yep. estimate. So, you know, we'll see what USDA does. Um, you know, certainly they've, they've right. ratcheted that down already, but. Okay. What about uh, soybeans? What are you, your expectations? What did the survey show you? Yeah. I mean, again, soybeans sitting around 50 on, on soybeans. Um, so not a big change from USDA. And that's kind of where we were, you know, really for the last uh, month and a half as we were seeing the numbers come in. And so, so again, I just don't see any surprises. And I can, you know, I can tell you, I mean, Chip, you remember 2020 when we had the deratio and, yep. and, you know, that year was such an anomalous year where we had USDA sitting at 178 on corn in October. Uh, and it just, you know, wasn't even close to that by the end, it was 172. And, and we were seeing that in the data. So, you know, I'm kind of a tea leaf reader here, if you will. I'm looking at the data as it flows into our data center, and I just don't see any huge swings that make me okay. disagree too much with USDA. Yeah. Then on the, as far as the yields go on the, on corn, again, you talked about that dividing line. You can you put the basis map up over that, Kevin, and it it reflects where where the new crop is short and where the new crop is adequate, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Chip, you and I have talked about this in the past, you know, basis and, and especially what's going on in the river is so um, unprecedented. You know, the water levels are unprecedented. And so, you know, the basis impacts are extreme. And and so, you know, the guys in, in the Ohio River area, the, you know, uh, southern Ohio, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, you know, those areas are, are pretty much uh, tied directly to those river markets for export, and they don't have many alternatives. And so we're seeing pretty big impacts on basis in those regions. And especially when you get down into the Mississippi Delta, those guys have seen massive losses on basis, you know, upwards of a dollar a bushel uh, divergence in basis as a result of what's going on in the river. So the river is improving modestly. You know, we've had the water levels tick up. We've seen barge rates come down a little bit, but they're still tacking so much above normal uh, that we're a long way from, from getting back to normal. So uh, the okay. effects are real and we'll see how it plays out on exports. You know, it's, it's well, the time of the year for the U S to shine. That's that's right. We talked about that in the last segment a little bit and, and how important that is going to be going forward. And the other area that we are seeing this reflected is is in land prices. You just wrapped up a, 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 a some research into Illinois farmland values. We've got about a minute left. Tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that was fascinating research. We looked into really granular transactions data across the entire state of Illinois and kind of broke it out regionally. And, you know, I mean, the central theme is farm prices have gone up. You know, we all know that story. And, and you know, we talk about like where they've gone up the most. And really, it's it's the high quality farmland that 
is kind of the leader. I call it kind of the leading indicator that 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 the money is flowing first and foremost into high quality farmland. And so we have metrics around kind of the quality of the farmland that just sold. And and what you see is the good quality farmland gets kind of the premium and gets pulled up the fastest. And then that drags kind of medium and lower quality farmland up. But that's also the farmland that kind of you know, would potentially flatten out or, or level off. I don't think, as we talk to farmers, I don't think we're going to see a big pull down in farmland values. I just don't think we're going to have okay. the big escalation we've seen in the last two years because of the broader, you know, macro conditions. Interest rates might take a little bit of steam out of the market. Yeah, you know what we need to see is uh, interest rates start to get above inflation. That is, if you go back to the '80s, Chip, that was yeah. you know when we saw interest rates get above inflation that's when it has a destabilizing impact on farmland values. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Nope. Nope. All right, Kevin. Hey, good stuff, buddy. Thank you so much for making time for us this morning. We appreciate you. Always a pleasure, Chip. All right. That is Kevin McNew. He is the, uh, the chief economist and VP of research at Farmers Business Network. So, Davis, there you go, up 23% on for average and above average quality land in Illinois. Heck that of a sounds move, about right. isn't it? Yeah. Yep, it really is. Yeah, heck of a move there. Hey, thanks for listening this morning. Appreciate it. you got to come back this afternoon. Matt Campbell from the Stonex Group. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to get reactions to the elections from Randy Russell, the Russell Group, and we will have a farmer forum. Today's the day, everybody. Get out and vote. Do your duty.